Good morning. My name is Gene. I'm one of the elders at Fullerton Free, and it's a pleasure to be with you today, whether you're in this room or you're watching from the comfort of your home, wherever that is. I'm so excited to be able to speak with you today because we're into the fourth session of our series on the book of Genesis. And we still are in that part about creation because we've had several good nuggets that allow us to look at them maybe each week in a slightly different way. Of course, repetition is very Old Testament idea, a Hebrew literature idea, something that's repeated over and over again. You begin to know and understand that it's it's important. It's just like when your parents tell you the same thing over and over again for 5,000 times. Have you ever had that experience? And then find out you're telling your children that over and over again for the same 5,000 times. It's because we learn sometimes by repetition. And so if we come to a passage again, it's sort of the culmination, the first culmination we have of the six days of creation. And we're going to be learning a little something about creation. But like every other passage in the Bible, you need to know and understand, well, it might be about creation. What we're really learning is something about God. And that's repetition too. I particularly like this one. And the the picture of God standing, looking at what he has created in the beginning of the 28th verse. Uh, An artist, a creator who's so pleased with what he has done. As a matter of fact, I'm going to do something you don't normally do. Instead of waiting till the end of the sermon to talk about the very last thing he said, I want you to know right now, and you just heard Josh read it, that he looked at this and said, this is not only good, it's very good. It's very good. So everything we're going to look at is very good today. And I think it is very good for us to know and understand how God not only looks at that, but how he looks at us. As we are part of his creation. And particularly as he looks at mankind. And in this passage, he empowers mankind. He says, and God bless them. I know that's really a mind-boggling thought and idea. But it's an important idea. We've seen some things where God has blessed people or blessed things before in creation. But this time he's blessing something that's created in his image and his likeness. And so when he blesses us, it means that his intent, his idea, the words that he speaks, it's all about us having every good thing being, well, empowered, if you will. And it's not just that he's got wishful thoughts that are good. There's something about a blessing, particularly from God, that when it is spoken, there, are, there is power in that speech. There is power in those words. Of course, we know that God just brought the first five days of creation into being with just a word. So it doesn't surprise us that there's power in that blessing. But we're going to see after the establishment of this blessing, if we go on in the book of Genesis and into other places, we're going to see other fathers who come through a godly line, turn around and bless their descendants. And there's something very powerful in that blessing. It's not just good wishes. It's the power that goes behind it. And of course, we've talked about repetition, but 
Let me also say that sometimes in the Old Testament, there are things that come up that are shadows. Things you get an idea planted and it's sort of a foretaste of things to come. And just as we can think about maybe different uh, patriarchs blessing their children, God occasionally comes and inserts himself into time and space. And he gives a blessing like he does to Abraham in the 12th chapter of the book of Genesis. And Abraham and his wife are octogenarians. They have no children. They have no hope of ever having children because they're so old and they're burdened with that thought. And yet he comes to him and says, I will bless you. You're going to have more descendants than than the stars in the sky. I'm going to bless you. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. And all people everywhere will be blessed through you. I can't imagine that Abraham really fully understood that unless maybe God revealed it to him through the power of the Holy Spirit. I would have wondered what that meant. I would still be thinking that I'm I'm going to be welcoming a baby into my octogenarian home soon, you know, that kind of a thing. But yet, that's what happened. And we see at different times, God going and blessing. Maybe he'll bless a prophet, a priest or a king or an artisan or somebody who's going to be writing scripture. And he doesn't just bless them and speak the words, but there's occasional times in the Old Testament where the Holy Spirit is actually mentioned as being the one to bring empowerment to those words. Now we begin to sort of understand that a little bit because we're New Testament people and and, and we like seeing that occasional hint of the the Holy Spirit. It's no surprise to us then, of course, we're looking back at the shadows that have been building on the day of Pentecost when the gospel message was preached for the very first time. There are about 3,000 people who responded and repented and they accepted Christ and they're filled with the Holy Spirit and they're empowered with that blessing. It's a picture of God blessing his people. And we begin to understand that. But don't think that that just happens in the Bible and the Bible stories. I can think about times when I've been in this room, and I bet you can too, where they bring somebody on stage and put their arm around them and they say, now these, this person is getting ready to go to the mission field or they're getting ready to go do that. And won't you pray with me? And often the person who's praying puts their hand on them and has the other one in the mic and then they ask us if we want to stand. And have you ever stood and raised your hand forward to participate in that prayer? We just did it this summer, even out on the roof. In an unholy way, on the roof. There's nothing very churchy about that. That's because God's blessings can come anyway and anywhere, and being outside is a perfect place to do that. And we prayed for a young couple that was getting ready to go down to the mission field. There is power in that. There's power in the words of God's people when they agree on something that fits his purpose and his will. And we lift it up in prayer and we speak those words. There is power. And God has empowered his people to have a wonderful life, a rich life, a life that's dedicated to him, a a life that brings honor and glory to him. He also enriches his creation. I like what it says next. Verse, well, it's the second half of 28. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now that's an interesting topic to be thinking about at church, isn't it? I didn't come up with that topic. God did. I didn't put it in this verse. God did. How could a perfect creation be made any more perfect or any more enriched? Well, it's because God, even at the very 
dawn of creation, looked at the crowning achievement that he had made in the establishment of mankind and said, I want you to be a part of my creative process. Now, again, there's other places where he spoke to animals on the earth and the sea who flew in the air. He said to them, you know, be fruitful, multiply. But this is a time when he's talked to people who can be fruitful and multiply and create children who are made in the image and likeness of God. Do you realize how powerful that is? That's a tremendous idea that God would bring us into the creative process, not just to people the earth with more people, but to bring us into the creative process so that we could bring people on the earth who are made in the image and likeness of God. He expected us to be with him and be a part of that. Most of my life, I've spent it uh, in some kind of work with a church or a Christian college and, and done all those kinds of things. But I also have a side interest in art, which means occasionally I get asked to go somewhere, flown in someplace to, to teach a lesson or a workshop on art. It's a very odd thing to do. And usually it's very, very pleasant. And I remember one time not too long ago when somebody asked me to come and do a thing on art and I went and I didn't know these people and they didn't really know me. At least I thought they didn't really know me. And I got into my spiel and we were doing the kinds of things we were doing. And all of a sudden I began to understand that I was in a kind of a hostile environment. I hadn't said anything hostile. I didn't do anything hostile. But it's like they were irritated with me. And I couldn't imagine what in the world was wrong. And finally, one person said, what does your church think about sex? I was a little taken back by that. I don't usually talk about church or politics when I go teach art classes. It just seems like sometimes it's a stress I don't need. But I said, well, I, I don't teach on those things unless everybody wants me to teach on those things. Yeah, we want to know. We want to know what your church thinks about sex. I said, my church is big on it. (laughs) We're all for it. We think it's great. Matter of fact, it's one of God's great ideas. I mean, we go running around thinking like we've made it up and we know all about it. But it's really one of God's great ideas to enrich our lives and bring us into fellowship with him. Of course, I said, it's so sad to look at the world and how that wonderful gift is used in such an unwonderful way. How something that's meant to bring people close together really drives people apart or how it could be turned into something that was full of strife or hatred or difficulty. I said, it's so sad. That's why we urge people to avoid all the wrong ideas about that talking topic By going and finding out what God had in his own mind. You know, it's always good to consult the maker's manual. And I said, he tells us. One man, one woman, together in a covenant relationship with God. I said, now that's God's idea of a threesome. I said, that is a great plan. It's rich. It's full. It's sweet. It keeps things focused as God intended it to be focused. This is me waiting for someone to talk in that class. Nobody said anything. Finally said, anybody have a question? One woman rose her hand and said, 
what color do I put here? <laughs> I would have given them more. I could have talked all day, but I sort of think I gave them about all they could handle on that particular one. But I was glad that they asked, and I was glad to give them an open and frank answer because God has brought us into such a rich place of rich, rich heritage. And we can, well, we can have that with him and be enriched by helping fill the world with people made in the created image of God. He also goes on and talks about the earth, subduing the earth and bringing it under dominion. And he's suggesting work and different kinds of things we can do. It gives us purpose. It gives us meaning. And it gives us something that is not just work to do, but it's work that fits into his project, what he's trying to hope and to accomplish. And of course, you look at this and you think, well, here he is in a basically perfect world. Now, we, it's been established that we're supposed to be his ambassadors. And I like that concept. I like that idea very much. But I would also add a little facet to that in a slightly different way. I think this passage is talking about us being his stewards. We still represent him. I think of an ambassador as being more of a white collar kind of an ambassador. A steward being more of a blue collar guy who rolls up his sleep and gets his hands dirty. But what do you say? What, what dirty work needs to be done in creation? Have you ever planted morning glories in your yard? We have, a, we have an odd property. It's very long. The whole left side of our property is nothing but a garden. And my wife, just as the woman was tempted by the serpent later on in the book of Genesis. <laughs> I blame this on Martha Stewart. She bought a package of morning glories because she was told that it would be cute and make it have a more cottage feel. And she planned those morning glories. And they took off like a bat out of hell down that left side of our field. It, they were cute for five minutes. And then it was like the battle of Armageddon. They went down the whole place. There was one day my wife was out working in the garden. And she had her back to the wall where the morning glories were. And she was sort of bending over. And a surly section of the morning glories grabbed her, drug her down. If my cocker spaniel hadn't been out there and attacked them and drug her back away, she wouldn't be here this morning. <laughs> you joke. And we joke. But there's a lot of things about the world that does need the help of man to, to bring a kind of order. I mean, the whole point of creation is order is coming out of chaos or blackness. And so for us to work and fill, it's not for us to use things to just the way we want it, but it's how to uh, use earth so it benefits us, but yet keeps a beauty and yet keeps the earth as he intended it to flourish. I, I kind of think about it. It's, it's sort of like Jesus saying later on, we're to be salt and light, we're to preserve, we're to flavor, and light we're to expose. We're to do the kinds of things that highlight the ministry and work of God. And so he puts people on this earth, letting us know that there is nothing that God's umbrella is not over in our life. And even in the work that we do, it can be that way. And what a wonderful way to be enriched through human relationships and through some work to do. He also 
educates his creation. Now, this will be an interesting passage of scripture. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed to be its fruit for you to eat. That's a that's an amazing statement. My first takeaway from that is that God wants everybody to understand in the creation story that he is the one responsible for giving us all of these good gifts. I mean, there's a reason why most people bow their heads and pray, or at least most God-believing people bow their heads and pray, is because we are acknowledging, even in the shortest of prayers, whether it's one that comes from, made up from our heart, or one that we learned as a child, or something like that, that we're only able to eat and be sustained and taken care of because of the way God has reached out to us and taken care of us. It's an amazing concept. Now, the vegetarian part... I would have made a bad Orthodox Jew. I would have had to have bacon in there somehow, okay? But let me tell you about this. At this particular moment, it appears that we did have a vegetarian diet. I realize there's some people who have different opinions about that. But there doesn't seem to be any dying at this particular moment in God's good creation. There, there's nothing like that happening. And so we're not taking the lives of animals to eat them. We're, we're eating a vegetarian lifestyle. And it, it appears that animals were not taking other animals' lives. Now, that, that is how I read it. And if you want to disagree with that, you can. That sort of thing doesn't appear to be happening until after the fall. And even then, we don't really see much about it. Until, I mean, there's a reason Adam and Eve have fig leaves on. It's God who gets skins of animals to clothe them after the fall. And if you go to the sons of Noah, uh, that, they're the people who are told that you can have, you know, the animals that roam around as food. And while there were some offerings and the fat parts of the offering that was given to God at different times, there's no real explanation what we did, did with the other. We're just, some people are just assuming because later on they eat those extra things that they were eating. We don't really know. My thought on this is this. He wanted to teach them right off the bat that death is not a part of life or it does not have to be a part of life and that death is something to be avoided if it can be avoided. He's created us in a perfect environment and given us this wonderful life. And it's only after the fall, which is coming up later, and I don't want to ruin the story for you, but it's only after the fall that death comes into the world. I mean, right now you can take a mirror and you can put it to the end of the first chapter. And the reflection there is God's mind. No crying, no tears, no pain, no death. Happiness, satisfaction, unity, being together, harmony, productive life. And at the fall, it's like the mirror was dropped and all cracked. And you can put it up again after the fall. When there's death, there's separation, there's enmity, there's strife. You can still get a reflection, but it's a distorted reflection of God because it's been messed up by the fall. I'm pretty sure that he was wanting to give us an image of perfection. Uh, That's why Isaiah, in uh, one of his prophecies and poetic sessions, says the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the goat and the calf will be with the lion and the child will play at the hole of the cobra. 
The whole idea is that when the Messiah comes, when this root from Jesse, this shoot that's supposed to be coming, that's been foreshadowed and told, when he comes and sets up his kingdom, it will be, as artists call it, the peaceable kingdom. I think there's a reason why almost to the very end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, we have that passage How many times have I read this passage at a funeral? How many times have you heard this passage at a funeral? And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I saw a bride coming down from heaven as adorned for her husband. That's a shadow too. And there's no crying. There's no death. There's no pain. The former things have passed away. Behold, I'm making all things new. That's the end of the Bible. We're at the beginning and you can't get any newer than Genesis 1, 28 and following. Because we see there what God's mind is. This is what he wants. He wants to educate us about his heart. You know, people are mad at God. They don't understand God. They don't understand why he lets the things happen. He did not. That is not the life that he created. And he works through the whole Bible even to the point of sending his only begotten son to die on the cross so that the enmity of death can be wiped out once and all with that sacrificial death. And all things can be made new. And that's not just good. That's very, very good. And we have other things that are going on today, but if you're stirred in your heart and you need to talk to somebody about how you can accept Jesus Christ, there'll be people down here later. Don't put that off. Come and talk with us. Because being in a right relationship with the God who restores creation in you and me for all eternity, that's very good. And all God's people said...